0: Well, there's more people here today than when I was practicing yesterday. <laughs> well, good morning. Uh, it's such a blessing for me to see you all here today. For those who might not know me, my name is Brad Wade. I have the privilege of serving uh, on the elder board here at Webster Bible Church, and I'll be giving the message today as uh, our senior pastor, Pastor Matt Fletcher, and assistant pastor uh, Mike Smith. Um, They were away this past week at the T4G conference. T4G stands for Together for the Gospel. And they just got back a couple days ago. I know it was an encouraging and fruitful week for them, and I am so glad that they're back with us today to spend this Lord's Day with us. To give you an idea of Pastor Matt and Pastor Mike's week, here are just some of the powerhouse preachers on their agenda. John Piper, Kevin DeYoung, Mark Dever, David Platt, Alistair Begg and Brad Wade. <laughs> For some reason, the lyrics of that Sesame Street song are coming to my mind. One of these, those things just doesn't belong here. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, that's true. But there is one thing that uh, I do have in common with those other preachers and that we're all preaching the same gospel. And it's the power of the gospel and the word of God that impacts hearers and not the power of the preacher. And I rest in that truth today more than ever. Well, When I was 26 years old, I took my first ever plane ride. When the plane reached an altitude of about 14,000 feet, a little over two and a half miles, the doors of the plane opened. I leaned out of the plane, looked down at the clouds far below me, and the earth far below them, and I jumped. Yes, on my very first flight, I went parachuting. So there I was, free falling, essentially plunging to my death at about 120 miles per hour. And after about 60 seconds, I pulled the ripcord and the parachute opened. Boy, was I relieved. Just seconds before that, I was hurtling to my death, but now I was safe and I finished the journey floating peacefully down to the ground. I can't tell you the joy that I felt when the ripcord was pulled and an actual parachute came out and not just a bunch of pots and pans like you sometimes see in the cartoons. However, when it comes to one's eternal state, many are putting their faith in the equivalent of a backpack full of pots and pans, thinking it'll save them, only to discover in the end that they had put their trust in the wrong thing. In addition, there are those who truly have life-saving parachute but are worried that it it might not be packed right or might have holes in it or something else might be wrong that'll prevent it from saving them, ultimately robbing them of the experience and the fullness of joy and peace that they could be experiencing. This is something that's always weighed heavily on me. At times for myself as I consider my own salvation, and at times as it relates to others that I love. So I've titled this message today, Am I Saved? And I pray that it will be helpful as each of us look at ourselves to truly see, one way or another, where we stand before the Lord. Before diving right into the heart of the, the question, see what I did there? There's a little foundation that we have to establish that starts with another critical question. What is truth? It's definitely possible to get very philosophical about truth, which we don't have time for today since Pastor Matt told me I only had 90 minutes for my sermon. (laughs) Just kidding. He said I could take a full two hours. (laughs) But when asking this question, what is truth, I want to be sure it's clear what I mean. I'm not referring to my truth or your truth, but instead the truth. The truth that actually reflects reality, how things really are. In our modern era, the very concept of truth is under attack, and the meaning of truth is becoming more and more blurred. President Abraham Lincoln was once having a dispute with a colleague. Unable to get his opponent to see the error in his thinking, Lincoln asked, "'How many legs does a cow have?' His colleague answered confidently, "'Four, of course.' Lincoln asked again, "'Suppose you call a cow's tail a leg?' Now how many legs does a cow have? Why, five, of course, the colleague replied just as confidently. Lincoln said, now that's where you're wrong. Calling a cow's tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. Oh, how that conversation rings true today. And nowhere is the importance of holding to an objective standard of truth greater than in matters of religion and faith. Many people have developed their own version of the truth in these areas, and it doesn't reflect reality, and the consequences of that are severe. And eternal. Before Jesus was handed over to be crucified, John in his gospel records an interesting conversation about truth that Jesus had with Pontius Pilate. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews. Pilate's what-is-true statement is one of the most important questions one can ask. How someone lives and dies, what and who they value, and what they believe are dependent on how one answers this question. Indeed, this may be life's most important questions, and it's critical for every single person to determine it. The stark reality is that when, when Pilate asked this question, he was looking directly at the origin of all truth. Not long before being arrested and brought to the governor, Jesus made the simple statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The word of God is the ultimate standard of truth. I am convinced of this for many reasons. If you aren't sure, I invite you to at least research it, as there have been much written about it, and the evidence is compelling, if not overwhelming. So many people distort God's word to ultimately define their own truth that seems right to them, or else they don't consider it at all. Any other path or standard, no matter how right it may seem to you, will lead you down a path of lies, ultimately leading to death. Proverbs 14.12 tells us, There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it's the way to death. As we consider the question, am I saved, it's critical we look to answer that based on the truth, not on a feeling or a belief with no true standard supporting it. As we continue this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal the truth to those who have been blinded to it. And to those who know the truth, may you rejoice and be grateful for God's grace and glorify Him now and always. Well, now that we've set our objective standard of truth as the Word of God, we will turn our attention to the main question at hand Am I saved? There's a lot packed into this question, and it's important that we start with the basics. Why does it matter? Why do we need to be saved, and saved from what? Well, those are good questions, and I am so glad you asked. The straightforward answer from Scripture as to why we need to be saved is because we are under God's wrath. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are by nature deserving of wrath. A good definition of God's wrath is that, it, that it's God's holy and justified response to sin, all sin. John 3.18 says, Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the Son of God. As the saying goes, the only sure things in life are death and taxes. In 2022, tax filing deadline was this past Monday, April 18th. If that information is a surprise to you, you may have some urgent matters to attend to. (laughs) However, don't leave. A matter infinitely more urgent than the state of your tax return on April 18th is the state of your soul when the other certainty... Physical death comes to pass. In chapter 9, the author of Hebrews warns of yet another certainty for all, judgment. Hebrews 9 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The first thing to understand about the final judgment is that it cannot be avoided. We have a divine appointment with our Creator. The passage from Revelations that Brother Chad read this morning gives a description of the day of judgment. So he said if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire. One thing we need to be clear on the Bible speaks of the realities of hell in the same terms as the reality of heaven. In fact Jesus spent more time warning people about the dangers of hell than he did about comforting people with the hope of heaven. The concept of a real conscious forever and ever existence in hell is just as biblical as a real conscious forever and ever existence in heaven. The doctrine of hell is probably one of the most challenging doctrines for most Christians, not because scripture makes it unclear, but because it's one of those things that in our flesh, in our wisdom, we don't want to accept. The Bible actually gives very few particulars about hell, but multiple times it compares it with the experience of, of being in hell with, with burning While at the same time, hell is compared with darkness and associated with intense grief and horror. While the Bible tells us what being in hell is like, as best as we can understand with our limited minds, it does not explicitly say what hell is or how exactly it functions. But what the Bible does make clear is that hell is real, eternal, and to be avoided at all costs. Friends, every single person, regardless of what they believe is true, How often they come to church, how much they tithe, what their parents' religion is, or their accomplishments, or anything else, will be judged by the same judge, Jesus Christ. And we will be judged either on our own merit, or we will be judged on the righteousness of Christ, which is offered to all as a free gift for those who would accept Christ as their Savior. How will you be judged on that day? Well, now that we understand what we need to be saved from, let's address the why. Why would we be under God's wrath in the first place? If you've been following along with us in our powerful study of the book of Romans that we started this past fall, you've seen that the Bible is very clear on why we need to be saved. From the days following the creation of all things, when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, every part of mankind, his mind, his will, emotions, and flesh have been corrupted by sin and therefore guilty in the eyes of the Lord. The Bible makes it very clear that all are lost in sin, oppose God, and are spiritually dead. Listen to this verse from Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, you may think, well, yeah, but what seems right to me is, hold that thought. Listen to, again, to Proverbs 14, 12 that we read earlier. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. Colossians two thirteen describes our spiritual state before salvation as us being dead in our sins. Well, that's what Scripture says about the nature of man, and its understanding is key to Salvation. In order to be saved, you have, you've got to believe what you need to be sa- that you need to be saved. Many people, if asked, would say that they're generally a good person. It's this prevailing attitude in many that's a significant obstacle to one truly being saved. It's another example of believing what one subjectively feels to be true, that they are generally good in spite of what the objective standard of truth says. With this in mind let's look at the account of, in Luke of a rich ruler who came to Jesus seeking to be saved Luke 18 And the ruler asked him Good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal eternal life And Jesus said to him Why do you call me good No one is good except God alone You know the commandments Do not commit adultery do not murder do not steal do not bear false witness honor your father and mother and he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. and You will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Here, Jesus challenges this rich ruler's concept of good. Although Jesus is good, He still asks this this rich man why he calls him good, pointing out that only God is good, knowing that this man was not referring to Jesus as God. We also see that this man viewed himself as good and righteous, saying that he's kept all the commandments even from his youth. Jesus makes it clear, however, that this is not the case and exposes the rich ruler's heart. As Scripture says, it's the heart that is deceitful, deceitful above all things and desperately sick. To demonstrate this to the rich ruler, Jesus could have pointed out the heart of the command, do not commit adultery, as he did in Matthew 5 when he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or Jesus could have pointed out the heart of the command, do not murder, as he did in Matthew 5 when he said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Or Jesus could have pointed out the heart of any other commands that this ruler claims and probably believes that he has kept. But the one that Jesus chooses to address with the ruler is the very first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus reveals the state of the man's heart regarding the very first commandment by revealing to him that he treasures his riches and his wealth above God. And so you see, approaching God, seeking to enter the kingdom of heaven based on our own merits, will never be successful. It's like trying to go skydiving with a bag full of pots and pans. The standard is holiness, and nothing short of that will be accepted. Having gone through how far short we fall from this as humans, it seems like this holiness is an impossible standard. As we continue reading in Luke 18, we see the crowd had the same concern. Referring to the exchange between Jesus and the rich ruler, scripture says that those who heard it then said, then who can be saved? The question almost sounds like a rhetorical question asked out of hopelessness. In other words, you could imagine the crowd saying, well, then if, if that's the standard, it's impossible. It's impossible. But Jesus had an answer to this seemingly impossible situation. We read in the very next verse, but he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. This is a necessary point each person needs to get in order to be saved. The point where they realize the truth that they can't save themselves. There's nothing one can do. No amount of good deeds, good living, or following rules can result in salvation. It's hopeless. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. He has made a way to eternal salvation and made it available to all who would call on him. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's probably the most well-known verse in the entire Bible and is such a great summary of the gospel. Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross. He took the Father's holy wrath that we deserve and has given us his righteousness. We lay our sins on Jesus, and he lays his righteousness on those who would believe. How awesome. Scripture tells us that we are sinners and we are utterly incapable of saving ourselves from an imaginably horrific eternity. But God, desiring that all would be saved, sacrificed his own son and poured out his holy wrath on him as punishment for our sins, so that by our faith in Christ, we can be saved and spend eternity in paradise. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Speaking of good news, I'm a Buffalo Bills fan, and we have recently finally started getting the better of the New England Patriots. Last season, in the last two games that we played, the Patriots, including the playoffs, we were not forced to punt even once. Our offense was unstoppable. In fact, in the playoff game, we became the first team in in NFL history to play a perfect offensive game, which means we never punted, turned the ball over, or even kicked a field goal. Every time we had the ball, we scored a touchdown. We dominated those games in every sense of the word. Well, as fun as that was to remember those games again, I actually want to use this as an illustration. Fun for most of us, anyways. I'm not sure if you noticed, but when referring to the Buffalo Bills in that story, I kept referring to we, us. We won. They couldn't stop us. I assume you all know that I personally had nothing to do with those games. When sports fans talk like that, they typically realize that they're not actually on the team. And they're not surprised when they don't get a $40,000 championship ring if their team wins the big one. If a fan really does expect rewards as if they were on the team, that would be a problem. The Bible actually talks about this when it comes to salvation, describing the case where people will believe that they are on the team, so to speak, however, really are not. And as opposed to the misguided football fan I just described, the damage in this case, is unimaginably worse when it comes to having a false sense of salvation. Let's consider these following verses from Matthew 7 that I've always felt are some of the scariest verses in the Bible and really are ultimately what led me to focus on this topic today. As Jesus is ending the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The truth in this passage is incredibly heartbreaking to me. It brings me face to face with the reality that many people in general and possibly many people I care about and love are deceived about their salvation. It's frightening to think about going to hell. It's even more frightening to imagine that moment when you finally see, but it's too late. You're going to hell when you thought you were going to heaven and there's nothing that can change that. And it's still more frightening to think that Jesus says many will have this experience. Some people think that they're Christians. They call Jesus Lord. They even do mighty works in his name. And yet they are not truly saved and never were. Just as Scripture makes it clear that there are many who have a false assurance of salvation, the Bible also looks to reassure true Christians who may struggle with an uncertainty that they have of their salvation. These brothers and sisters live in doubt, fear, and a unique form of misery and spiritual depression that they aren't able to experience the fullness of joy and the hope that God desires for his adopted children. So let's examine the scriptures together and see how we can be assured of our salvation because the assurance of faith in Christ provides great comfort to believers as well as stimulates a life lived in joyful holiness, unending praise to God and spurs us on to good works that the Lord has prepared for us. God does not want us to guess at or be uncertain of our salvation. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So, how do we test ourselves? What do we use as the basis of our examinations? Our feelings? Our good deeds? No. We use Scripture, the standard of truth. John the Apostle describes the whole purpose of his letter in 1 John when he says in its conclusion, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know and have eternal life. With that in mind, let's review five signs from Scripture that can help us as we test ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. I pray that as we do, those truly in the state of grace would be encouraged and be filled with joy at the salvation that we have in Christ. And for those who are not, that the Lord calls out to them even this hour and opens their eyes to the truth of the gospel. So that they would receive Christ as their Lord. Well, before you can have assurance of salvation, you have to believe and be saved. You must confess that Jesus Christ as Lord. It's only by faith in Christ, which is given to us as a free gift, by His grace, are we saved. In Romans 10, we're told if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The word believes here means more than simply agreeing in our minds that something might be true. James 2.14 begins a discussion of faith without works and includes a vivid point by James that even the demons believe and tremble. The faith of the demons, however, is useless, even though they tremble at what they know to be true. People who say they believe in God while showing no evidence of faith have a level of belief similar to that of demons. When Paul says believe in your heart, it means to fully trust that we believe so strongly that we commit our lives to him and strive to live the way that we know he wants us to live. That is true belief. That is true faith. The reference to our heart refers to the the core of who we are, our inner being, our mind, our emotions. Our desires. Suppose you're walking along a path and you came to a bridge that crosses a deep canyon. You might look at it and believe that it would hold you. You might even see other people walking across it, so you know it would hold your weight. But so far, your belief in the bridge is only in your head. When do you truly believe that the bridge will hold you? You only really believe in your heart when you are willing to commit your life to it and actually walk across it. It's the same way with Christ. Yes, we can believe that God exists, but God wants us to come to know him personally. And he has bridged the gap between us by sending his son to remove the barrier of sin and become that bridge. To believe in Christ is to commit our lives to faith, by faith to Christ, to trust him personally as our lord and savior. The understanding of what Paul means here when he says believe is crucial. A lack of understanding about this is something that I think can allow people to be misled into a false sense of security. Some people assume that they are saved because they grew up in Christian culture or they've gone to church all their lives and they know the scripture or they have been baptized, but they only believe in their minds. They have never truly believed or trusted in their heart. A second sign of true salvation is seen in a life that is changed. As we read in Second Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. The moment that we receive Christ as Saviour, the Holy Spirit, one of the three persons of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, comes to live inside us, not figuratively, but literally. Our body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit helps us to live a changed life. Paul tells us in Romans 8, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And I love the promise God gives us in Ephesians 1, where we read, in him, with him being Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So our salvation becomes sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our, in- of our eternal heavenly inheritance. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And I love how that verse ends, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, our life is changed. How we think, act, speak, conduct ourselves will be different. Our habits change. These things will increasingly be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, which, as we know from Scripture, are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. You will not be the same person that you used to be. This doesn't mean that you'll be perfect. It'll still be a struggle to make the right choices. But the fact that there's a struggle at all is evidence that something has changed. As I was pondering this concept, I thought about New Year's resolutions that people tend to make. Can you guess what percentage of them actually keep them, according to some studies that I read online? Only about 7% of people who make New Year's resolutions tend to keep them. And on average, 80% of those people tend to abandon the resolutions by January 12th. So what's the difference between those that kept the resolutions and those who abandoned them? The difference wasn't in the type of resolution. No, most resolutions across both groups were health-related things like exercising more, eating healthier, losing weight, or financial things like getting out of debt, saving more money. These are all good things, so the difference isn't in the worthiness of the resolution. I think it's reasonable to think that the, the 7% of people were able to keep the resolution is because that they were inwardly changed somehow. Something happened that produced a true inward change in their life, and the evidence or signs that this change is real is displayed by how they live their life. So although it's the change of heart that allows these people to keep their resolutions, it's the keeping of the resolutions that provides the evidence of the change, truly changed heart. Scripture tells us the same thing about salvation. In James 2, he speaks of this very thing when he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so if we say we're saved but nothing has changed about us, something is wrong. As the saying goes, if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works and the gospel is the transforming agent in our lives. Just like those people who make New Year's resolutions but ultimately go back to their old habits, sometimes people make a commitment to Jesus, but sooner or later it becomes evident that no lasting change was made in their hearts. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 13 in the parable of the sower when he said, Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprung up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Jesus went on to explain the meaning of this by saying, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. If you are truly saved, you will not only be changed due to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but you will keep on changing. The Holy Spirit will produce a continued change in you as you are being sanctified, growing more and more into the likeness of Christ. A third sign we can use to, that Scripture tells us that uh, is evidence for, uh, for one who is truly a disciple of God is, is by your love a love rooted in God's love for us. Scripture tells us in 1 John 4 that we love because he first loved us. John wrote the letter of 1 John to the congregations across Asia Minor, which is Turkey today, to reaffirm the core of Christianity, saying that either we exhibit the sound doctrine, obedience, and love that characterizes all Christians, or else we are not true Christians. Remember, John said that he wrote these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Love love is a recurring theme in his letter. And the apostle leaves no doubt for how it permeates the lives of true Christians and how assurance of salvation comes especially as we find ourselves learning to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. In 1 John chapter 2 through 4, the three chapters that basically comprise the body of his letter, he refers to the recipients of this letter as beloved six times. Such a beautiful term of endearment, reminding them over and over again how much he loves them. And speaking of loving one another as a sign of true Christian, John says in his letter, "Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Not only does John address the the love that a true believer has for his brothers and sisters in Christ, but he also speaks of what a true believer should not love. After all, how can true believers who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit love the things that God hates? Earlier in 1 John, we read, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the sins of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. In his gospel, John continues his theme as he records in John 13 the words of Jesus as he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I had loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, the context of what was happening during the time when Jesus said this is interesting. It was during the Last Supper where, just prior, Jesus, the Lord of Lords, whose name is above every other name, the Savior of the world, knowing that he would soon be tortured, hung on a cross, and killed for the sins of the world, stooped to wash the dirty and disgusting feet of each of his disciples, even washing the feet of Judas Iscariot who Jesus knew was set to betray him. This is the standard of love that Jesus set. As I was thinking about and reviewing this section of my message last week, my beautiful wife Peggy shared a a social media post from a homeschool convention group that said, sometimes I joke about what I would do if I had one day left to live, eat junk, go crazy, etc. Today it hit me, Jesus knew, and he washed feet. Do you truly love your brothers and sisters in Christ as Christ loved us, desiring to be with one another? As Hebrews warns us, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Is your love an act of love? How does it show? Are you an active member of a local church, regularly attending and encouraging your brothers and sisters in the faith? Do you freely forgive as you are forgiven? Seek out and meet the physical needs of others. Pray with and for each other. Humbly sacrifice and serve one another. Rejoice and mourn with your brothers and sisters in Christ, bearing one another's burdens. Do you extend to others mercy and grace as it has been given to you? Do you truly and actively strive to love one another as Jesus loved his disciples and as he loves us? Well, the fourth sign of being truly saved is experiencing persecution. There's no doubt that persecution is a stark reality of living a Christian life. Christian persecution is to be expected. The Apostle Paul warned in 2 Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In John 15, Jesus made it clear that those of the world will hate Christians because the world hates Christ. We are motivated by the love of God and holiness while the world is driven by the love of sin. It's our very separation from the world that arouses the world's animosity. Persecution can take a lot of forms. In some areas of the world, persecution for Christ's sake could be anything, even unto death. Here in the United States, more common examples of persecution are things like being mocked or teased, being excluded by friends or family, maybe job related issues, or, or even being accused of being hateful for just speaking biblical truth. However, I will say that this country seems to be increasingly more hostile to Christians and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, what persecution looks like over time will certainly evolve. Friends, if you have experienced the persecution for Christ's sake, take heart and rejoice. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As we endure this persecution, God makes us another promise, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If you have not been persecuted for your faith, it doesn't mean that you aren't truly saved, but it should make you think and wonder why. And if you are truly saved, know that it's coming. So get ready. Be prepared. Make sure you're part of a good Bible-believing and preaching church. Make sure you are in his word and are regularly spending time in prayer, putting on the armor of God. Well, this leads us to the fifth sign of salvation that we can use to test ourselves. We can see evidence of our salvation in our desire to conduct ourselves in a way that pleases God. Getting back to 1 John, we read in chapter 3, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If we're not careful, we might interpret this verse as teaching that anyone who is born of God doesn't sin. Of course, that would conflict with other passages in the Bible that describe us as fallible and often failing. In 1 John 3, 9, the word for sin is a present active infinitive that describes a continuous action. John is not saying that whoever sins once is not born of God. That would disqualify all of us. But notice the ESV translation, as well as many others, translate this to indicate a practice or pattern or a habit of sinning. John's saying, in effect, whoever keeps on willfully sinning, violating God's law with stubborn disregard and ongoing wickedness, cannot have assurance of salvation. Before a person knows Jesus, there really isn't a struggle against sin. There may be regret or remorse or hesitation, even before you accept Jesus because before you accept Jesus you have a conscience that bears witness to the presence of the law of God written on our hearts but once you meet Jesus there's something new inside of you the presence of the holy spirit the holy spirit actively leads you away from sin and toward God that means any time you choose to sin it will be an active struggle against the holy spirit if you can do something that God calls sinful and not have a strong internal struggle, that's a bad sign. If you really know Jesus in a saving way, you can't happily go back to, the, to your sin. Yes, a true believer can get off the right path, way off the path, in fact, but God, but the call to come home will always be there. They will not be able to be happy or content until they come back. As we consider our conduct as a sign of salvation, let us consider our habits Are we convicted of the things that we do and consider whether or not they honor and glorify God according to his word? Or are we regularly engaging in sin against God by being outside his will, as he has revealed to us through his scripture? Some questions we could ask ourselves, are we building up brothers and sisters in Christ, showing the love of Christ in in the way that we use social media? Would Jesus be pleased if he were physically seated with us as we stream our favorite shows or surf the internet? Are we honoring the Lord by how we serve and give of both our time and finances? If the answer to any of these questions or other similar questions is no, it's critical to ask yourself if we are grieved over these issues and are desiring to repent and sin no more. If we are truly saved, we will grieve over our sins. We won't let our pride turn our head from the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and we will be sensitive to it. We will then confess our sins and seek God's grace to do better. Well, as we wrap up this topic that has weighed so heavily on my heart for a long time, I pray that the Holy Spirit in truth has convicted or assured each person here based on their true standing before the Lord. Ultimately, I think people fall into one of four different groups. The first group, are, first group of people are those who, who aren't saved and aren't under any false impression otherwise. If this describes you, I pray that even right now, God would open your heart so that you might believe the gospel. And if you feel you are just too unworthy, here's a secret we are all unworthy. But Christ is worthy, and He offers us His worth, His righteousness. If only you believe in him and call on his name. If you do that today, you will be a new creation and will be transformed. You, who were dead in your sins, will be made alive with the Spirit of God, taking up residence inside you forever. There is no more important decision that you can make today, so I plead that you do not leave here today without making it. The second group of people is easy to explain. They are truly God's adopted children. And through testing of themselves and and through the assurance of the Holy Spirit, have 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 a right assurance of that. If that is you, praise God this morning and use this assurance of what God has done in your life to motivate you to live the life that he has given you to his glory. Hebrews 6, verses 11 and 12 says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The people in the third group are truly saved, but they lack assurance. Scripture says that having assurance of salvation is possible and should be sought. Nevertheless, not everyone who has been saved has secured this peace. Their degree of assurance fluctuates from firm to shaky. Without this assurance, it's impossible to have true joy in God. Assurance is necessary in order for authentic worship. Someone isn't going to worship a, a, a God fully if they suspect that he's going to condemn them to eternal punishment. If you're still in this group, even as you consider the signs of salvation we went through, I would encourage you to read and pray through the book of 1 John. The fourth group of people are those who are not saved but think they are. They're the ones that call out to Jesus, Lord, Lord. Yet Jesus responds to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now notice what Jesus says here. He doesn't reply, you never knew me. Instead, he says, I never knew you. Our eternity is not determined by whether we know Jesus, but by whether he knows us. Why does he say it this way? I think he's saying it this this way. I think he is saying that many will claim to know Jesus, but it will be a distorted Jesus that falls in line with their truth and what seems right to them. This means that these people do not know the real Jesus, the truth, and therefore deny the true Jesus. He tells us later on in Matthew 10, Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's why we must understand how to find the real, undistorted truth and then, make, and then based on this truth, examine ourselves carefully to make sure that our profession of faith is, in fact, genuine. Do you remember that, uh, the football fan illustration that I mentioned earlier when I was talking as though I were actually a member of the Buffalo Bills? Well, this illustration can be looked at another way. Due to the saving work of Christ on the cross, we can truly be on the team receive all the benefits of victory and in fact claim the victory for ourselves even though we did none of the work why is this the case because christ has already done the work won the war and claimed the victory christ and christ alone and he did it for us so that everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved one absolutely glorious truth are you saved Regardless of which of the four groups of people you were in when you woke up this morning, it is my prayer that when you leave here this morning, you are counted among those in the group of people who are truly saved and who can worship our great and mighty God and Father with pure joy and gratefulness for what he has done for us through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Father God, first and foremost, I pray that your Holy Spirit was at work among us this morning in a mighty way, convicting those who need convicting, comforting those who need comforting, and opening the eyes of the blind. Lord, you tell us that it's your desire that none would perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. God, as that is your desire, so it is also mine. So now I pray for the lost. I pray that you would open their hearts to believe the saving message of the gospel. I pray that you would be free from them, that you would free them from the slavery of sin and remove Satan's binding influence. Please, Father, have mercy on them and grant them repentance. By your grace, may they gain eternal life through Christ our Lord. Father, I also lift up to you those who are truly saved but struggle with doubt for whatever reason. I ask that the five signs of salvation that we discussed earlier would be a help and an encouragement to those people who would give them confidence to worship you in fullness of joy and would encourage them not to be sluggish, but to be imitators of Christ all the more each day. And it's in the name of the glorious Savior that we serve, we pray. Amen.